Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi there, and welcome once again to the Explaining History podcast. Thanks for tuning in on Monday, and we've got a really good week of content ready for you to go out. A couple of reviews and some uh, some diving into some uh, deep topic areas uh, that we're going to do. And the one I want to start with today is the idea of Europe's um, gener- generational period of uh, self-destruction from 1914 to 1945. And I'm looking at Ian Kershaw's book To Hell and Back, which is an interesting departure for uh, Ian Kershaw, who, uh, as we know, is one of the, the leading historians of Nazi Germany, the uh, uh, probably the most celebrated biographer of Adolf Hitler. Um, and he's looking at a kind of a more pan-European uh, approach here. And um, I really enjoyed um, reading the the way in which he kind of sums up the the deep structural causes of uh, this kind of uh, genocidal uh, uh, period uh, of European history, and the um, the, the uh, various economic, um, ideological, and structural factors uh, that lead to it. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, there's a, a marvelous quote to begin. Um, the, the, the book by Churchill in 1901, where he says, The wars of people will be more terrible than those of kings. And the, 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 there's something very, very kind of pertinent to that in that um, the 20th century is widely referred to as the people's century. It's an age where mass populations were connected with political power through the franchise, through mass political organisations and mass mobilisation in a way that they hadn't been at any other point in in history. And the result was um, political change on a scale unprecedented. You only need to look at uh, examples such as the Russian Revolution, the development of Nazism and um, Italian fascism, but also political movements such as the Popular Fronts in Spain and France and uh, mass labour politics uh, and mass uh, democracy in Great Britain to realise this this was a people's century 
Um, the uh, kings and emperors uh, were only peripheral figures when it came to deciding the politics of war and peace. Now, perhaps the more in-depth text that you'd get if you were uh, wanting to explore this would be Eric Hobsbawm's The The Age of Extremes, his history of what he calls the short 20th century, that he argues ran from 1914 to 1991. But in The Age of Extremes, Hobsbawm refers to Europe um, as having been uh, a civilization, a the nineteenth the, the civilization of nineteenth century Europe, um, that is completely shattered and destroyed by the events of nineteen fourteen, and unable to um, recreate itself after nineteen eighteen. Instead, new political ideas and new political forces along with the economic, the economic forces on debt particularly, um, and inflation have reshaped the world um, so that it would have been unrecognisable to the Edwardians who had bid it farewell uh, four years earlier. So Kershaw um, presents a, a solid thesis. Um, he says that there were three, four, I beg your pardon, main factors um, that made it... Um, a, a Second World War, all but inevitable. Um, it, impossible to secure stability across Europe um, after the Paris Peace Conference uh, in 1919. Um, he said these were an explosion of ethnic racist nationalism, and that's not just contained to Nazi Germany, uh, as we'll look at in a moment, Bitter and irreconcilable demands for territorial revisionism, acute class conflict, um, now given concrete focus through the Bolshevik Russian Revolution, and a protracted crisis of capitalism, which many observers thought was terminal. So we'll look at each one of these points in uh, in turn. But together they present um, a, a crisis of almost inestimable proportions. One of the great surprises of the 20th century is that liberal democracy, in one form or another, survived. Um, it, by 1941-42, it looked increasingly unlikely that that was going to happen. So, an explosion of ethnic racist nationalism. The destruction of four empires, um, three of which were um, mainly uh, multi-ethnic, the Russian, um, Ottoman and Austrian, uh, and the the fourth, the German Empire, which was indeed multi-ethnic, it contained uh, French people uh, in Alsace and Lorraine, Poles in uh, Prussia, uh, Silesia, um, there were uh, Czechs and other ethnic minorities uh, along the uh, south uh, eastern border. Um, so, the, but not to the same extent that, say, Austria-Hungary was multi-ethnic or the Ottoman Empire. But the um, um, the collapse of these empires, uh, mainly in nineteen eighteen. Um, led to the realisation of ambitions from as far away as Ukraine um, to uh, Iraq and Syria um, that would uh, be irreconcilable with reality. 
in uh, Sleepwalkers by Christopher Clarke, one of the things that he notes is as Serbia became more autonomous from the Ottoman Empire from 1878 onwards, the uh, increasing strength of nationalist culture in Serbia um, is totally overwhelming to uh, any institutions of moderation in Serbian society. Um, and the kind of the irredentism, the desire for um, territories that have long been seen as ethnically Serbian, um, that have in sort of Serbian mythology been unfairly annexed away by the Austrians or whomsoever else, is a, a huge and sort of corrosive part of Serbian cultural life. Now, if you imagine, if you fast forward to 1919, and the, there was irredentism in uh, the new Czechoslovakian state, um, Poland, Hungary, Romania, uh, Ukraine, as that was um, brief, briefly liberated and then reassimilated re back into the Soviet Union. Um, the, uh, there was uh, irredentism uh, across the Ottoman Empire. And you find that in the Balkans and in other parts of Europe, um, there is very little ethnic homogeneity. Um, there are patchworks of communities all the way across the, the Balkans and Eastern Europe um, where um, different ethnic groups have lived cheek by jowl for centuries, getting on and not getting on in turn, um, but living some kind of fairly ordered and stable existence in the knowledge that there was always uh, an authority in the guise of Austrians or Turks or whoever uh, willing to impose law and order if it got out of hand, if inter intercommunal um, tensions turned into, into violence. But it's the imposition of borders and the development of new ideas of national identity, i.e. on that side of the border you are Hungarian, on this side of the border you are Polish. Um, and therefore, if you exist in, on, on this side of the border and you are Polish, um, why is it you are currently speaking a, um, a, a different ethnic language, um, Ukrainian or, or whatever? Um, the, the, the creation of nation-states uh, actually fuels notions of um, ethnic tribalism. And each um, new nationalism functions in roughly the same way that, that most nationalisms do. If you want a really good read on that one, please read Imagined Communities by Benedict Anderson. It's a, the uh, best and most brilliant um, analysis of nationalism. I think it's probably never been written. But they have, nationalisms have to reach into the past uh, in order to explain the present and to predict the glorious future round the corner. Uh, nationalism is a very modern idea, but it has um, it, it has a kind of an imagined past that it draws from, which is normally wholly incompatible with those of its neighbours. The second point was bitter and irreconcilable demands for territorial revisionism. The um, decisions about what to do with the collapsed empires of Europe and the Middle East was incredibly complicated. Uh, there were map-drawing teams at the Paris Peace Conference revising their, their planned maps on a, a daily and sometimes on an hourly basis. Um, they had often 
little contact with one another and were loosely supervised by the overstretched administrations of, of Britain and France. So you had um, British and French um, f uh, diplomatic officials uh, carving up parts of Eastern Europe and the Middle East that they had very little understanding with and certainly would never have visited. And this meant that um, the, the combined with Woodrow Wilson's um, pronouncements on self-determination uh, for all peoples, um, you, you had a, an explosive and uh, powerful uh, mix of, of forces here. When Wilson made a statement saying that um, all peoples should have uh, self-determination, in effect he was saying that uh, all ethnic groups should be able to exist in homogenous nation-states. That's how it's heard. Um, his, uh, interestingly, his pronouncements on self-determination don't quite extend as far as uh, Britain and France's colonies around the world. Um, the, the British and French make sure that their empires and their imperial interests are not affected. And if anything, their, their empires actually grow uh, following uh, the Paris Peace Conference. But the uh, telling a patchwork continent of um, ethnic uh, groupings like Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, that um, homo ethnic homogeneity was the preferred outcome and that um, all peoples having self-determination were able to live under one flag together, um, was, was presenting um, Europe really with kind of wholly unrealistic expectations of, of what could be achieved. Invariably, you you wind up again with multi-ethnic states, Czechoslovakia being uh, a point in question. Uh, the new Yugoslav state was a, a coalition of Croat, Serb and Slovene peoples. Um, the Poles and the Hungarians lived with ethnic minorities in their borders. And one of Hitler's main complaints is that um, self-determination seems to apply to everybody else except for Germans. Germans who uh, would be condemned to live, uh, in his view, under the rule of inferior Slavic peoples, such as the Sudeten Germans in uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, he also said, surely Anschluss, the, the Austrians, they are a Germanic people, um, Anschluss, the, or the forbidding of Anschluss, means that there can be no union between Germany and Austria. This is a direct, uh, a direct contravention of the, um, uh, the Wilson's 14 points. And so the Treaty of Versailles does not ap apply to Germans. And Hitler's ability to uh, point out the uh, shortcomings and the problems and what he viewed as the hypocrisies of the Treaty of Versailles goes a long way to undermining it. And not just undermining it in the eyes of Germans, but within a, a decade or so, many um, members of the British government, particularly the British Foreign Office, are starting to look at the Treaty of Versailles and think, well, this was pretty unreasonable. And as a result, we've stored up all sorts of problems for the future. One of the earliest examples of these um, contested um, demands um, for territorial revisionism. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Were the compromises that were made um, at Italy's expense at the Paris Peace Conference, the furious exit from um, the Big Five group uh, which, uh, of Italy, which eventually descends to the, the Big Three when uh, Japanese Japanese delegation abandoned it as well, um, it was based around the refusal of the Allies to grant Italy um, the Dalmatian coastline, which would now be in modern-day Croatia, and the port of Fiume, um, which uh, was a um, which was granted to Yugoslavia, um, which had a large uh, Italian population and had traditionally been seen as uh, it- Italian. Um, other demands of um, kind of uh, Austrian Alpine territory are partially granted, but really most of what um, Italy wanted is no longer on, on the table. Um, there was a, a, a hope that um, Italy might be given large portions of the Ottoman Empire as well, uh, and this um, f- uh, f- fades to nothing. And the contrast with Germany is interesting. Uh, Germany, as the vanquished power, has to accept um, what it views as all manner of unfair provisions at the Treaty of Versailles, whereas the Italians, as one of the victorious powers, but in the eyes of the British and French, seen as a kind of a negligible also-ran that switched sides to uh, pick a be- get a better deal when it suited them. Um, and much of that observation isn't actually completely fair. I mean, the, the Italian war effort was plagued with disaster, but um, actually large numbers of Italians were sacrificed in order for um, the the final victory. And the Italians, um, whilst perhaps not being um, the, the, the most skillfully led of armies, if you look at the uh, tremendous sacrifices uh, after the uh, at the Battle of Caporetto, still they um, the levels of kind of military competence uh, on on the Italian side um, are in some ways roughly comparable to the various disasters inflicted on British troops at um, battles such as the Somme and the various battles of of Passchendaele, uh, of Ypres. All the victorious powers were riven by um, deep class conflict by 1918-1919. During the Paris Peace Conference, um, Lloyd George had to return home to deal with the levels of militancy and unrest, uh, which uh, went from 
uh, not simply just the uh, wartime workers um, and miners, but also uh, the police force in Great Britain. And one of the reasons why the British have a police federation, essentially a trade union for the police, is because of unrest in 1919 and 1920, where the police essentially threatened to go on strike. Um, and um, mutinies within the army of soldiers demanding to be returned home. Um, there were much bigger mutinies in the French army in 1917. Um, obviously, mutinies in um, the uh, Russian army in February uh, 1917 lead to the February Revolution. And later, um, it's the, the army choosing for um, the Bolsheviks um, has a significant impact um, on, in, on the October Revolution. So um, class militancy and uh, class conflict was not contained to um, Russia alone. The uh, previous podcast I'd done on Great Britain uh, from last week, somewhere um, I talked about uh, Union militancy, militancy during the, the Forgotten Depression of the uh, early 1920s. That's well worth a, re- uh, well worth a listen if uh, you're, you're doing something on, on this topic area. But um, it's important to remember, of course, that World War I really ends primarily because of class struggle in Germany. The Kaiser of Germany abdicates because there is a revolution. It is the the, uh, the German army is being defeated on the battlefield. But had Germany remained um, socially stable, the chances are that the Allies would have reached the German border and then dug in for an extremely long fight. They would no doubt have planned to have invaded Germany. Uh, but the, uh, the the German army and probably the German population would have fought for every inch of territory. So the overthrow of the Kaiser, the Kaiser was pretty sure that he was going to go the way of his cousin Nicholas II, who had been uh, gunned down earlier that year, um, and he fled to the Netherlands. Um, the reason why the um, Treaty of Versailles is signed in the way that it was why a reluctant and um, resentful delegation from uh, the Weimar government, uh, led by Philip Scheidemann, um, who uh, signed the Treaty of Versailles uh, when they did, instead of holding out and prevaricating, is that they knew uh, that if any more pressure was brought to bear on Germany from the large British blockade um, uh, or from an Allied invasion of Germany, that quite possibly a second revolution would happen. Um, and the, the communists or in, or the Spartacists may seize power, just as the Second Revolution had happened in uh, Russia. The um, social, moderate social democrats of the SPD were acutely aware that they would be essentially first up against the wall if that happened. Um, so the uh, being able to um, conclude business with the Allies and then quickly make a deal with the army um, to shore up this, the um, uh, shore up the state. Already uh, in um, January of that year, the army January nineteen nineteen, the army had been used to put down the uh, Spartacists, but um, their, the, the the threat of the radical left had not gone away by any stretch of the imagination uh, in in Germany. Class conflict lingers, of course, because uh, the civil war in the Soviet in Russia um, doesn't see the overthrow of the communist regime. Instead, the Soviet Union is established, 
and it is a pariah state. There's um, uh, John Maynard Keynes makes the point in his book in 1920, The Economic Consequences of the Peace, that nothing is done to bring Russia back into the world economic system or the world political system. It's a pariah state that exists on the periphery of Europe um, and is um, exists in a state of, of chaos to some part, but as a dictatorship emerges, um, becomes a, a, a destabilising factor, particularly from the 1930s onwards as uh, it um, develops um, its own um, new uh, industries designed to uh, really defend the Soviet Union uh, and be able to ex project the Soviet Union's military might overseas. And throughout this time, communist parties that exist across Europe, um, exist across Europe and America and Asia and pretty much everywhere else, um, following the purge of Trotsky, uh, look to Stalin and via the tool of Comintern, the uh, the organisation of Comintern, look to Stalin for their um, political direction. Stalinist orthodoxy therefore manages to infiltrate everyday life in European countries uh, and uh, other, other countries across the world. Throughout the 1930s you see periodic outpourings of class conflict, not so much in Britain, um, Britain's had its had its moment with the general strike, um, the hunger marches of the throughout the nineteen thirties, um, and later the decision by uh, British volunteers, about two and a half thousand of them, to go to Spain and fight shows that uh, issues and questions of class struggle um, and a very politicised working class. Um, were key um, in shaping the, the ideas of the age. There was uh, an immense amount of sympathy. I've talked about this quite a lot before, the uh, fellow traveller movement. There's an immense amount of intellectual sympathy for the Soviet Union throughout the period. Um, everyone from uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb through to H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw um, and a host of other uh, sympathetic intellectuals who were actually members of the Communist Party themselves, but they really wanted communism to triumph in Russia, whilst being uh, blind to the purges and famines. Um, they offered uh, communism I I immense intellectual support and respectability, and as a result, the Nazi-Soviet Pact of August 1939 is quite a shock to them. And one of the reasons why the Soviet Union is fated throughout the 1930s is it seems to be the only country um, that is capable of developing um, economically at the height of the Great Depression. The idea that market forces were a um, modern and innovative and powerful and useful tool um, to shape economies and competitiveness and efficiency was uh, an absolute anachronism after the First World War. The old um, order uh, based on free markets, uh, small government and what we would think of as economic liberalism had been destroyed by the war. Um, the, sec the First World War showed that state intervention clearly worked, state intervention could um, mobilise the entire nation for victory, and so there was a belief that, well, if that's possible, 
um, why can we not use state intervention to mobilise the entire nation for peace? And Lloyd George, in his various housing acts, um, planned in the early 1920s, speaks in the in these these terms. The um, uh, intellectuals such as the the Webbs viewed um, the uh, reliance on market forces as a real kind of um, backward step. Uh, the kind of thing that might have uh, been okay in the 19th century, but obviously uh, that resulted in slums and inequality. And the uh, a modern, scientifically um, informed, technocratic state that could plan logically and orderly would be the uh, the way of doing things in the 20th century. This is a real kind of modernist fantasy, um, and the. And by the way, when I say fantasy, I'm not suggesting that it's impossible, but it was a modernist vision. I think that's perhaps the, the kind of the way of looking at it. And this vision seems to be realising itself in the Soviet Union. That's pretty, the, the Soviet Union economically is speaking their language um, and seeming to be successful if you ignore the gulags and the famines. And in the Western world, the beginning of the Great Depression in October 1929, with the Wall Street crash simply underlines to anyone unsure that um, the the capitalist system is anarchy. Um, it can't be relied on to produce um, material and beneficial outcomes for most of the population. And there's no, no easy way to reconcile this chaos uh, before the war. Britain's Great Depression lasts comparatively shorter time than the United States. Um, Britain's abandonment of the gold standard enabled the country to devalue and come out of depression by about 1934 or 35 at the latest. And then house building in the second part of the of the 1930s um, enabled um, a, a a relatively prosperous south and middle of the country. Um, to to develop, uh, of course, the thing about the Great Depression in uh, Britain is it's always regionalized. You know, the the southeast and the Midlands do pretty well, whereas back economic backwaters that are previously based on heavy industry, such as Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and the North of England, um, are, are are forgotten. So that brings in those the collision of those four factors. Um, the, the rise of um, uh, ethnic and racial nationalism, um, irredentism and the desire for the revision of the Treaty of Versailles, um, the explosion in class conflict and the inability to, uh, after 1929, to resurrect the world economy uh, meant that um, crisis uh, in whatever combination was all but inevitable. Anyway, I've gone on for way too long on this podcast, uh, but I hope you've enjoyed it and you found it handy. Now, if you can go to the Explaining History iTunes um, page and give us a vote, give us a thumbs up, give us a thanks, uh, because it all really, really helps. Um, that would be really handy, and I'll catch you on the next podcast coming soon. All the best. Bye-bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.